We have undertaken a study of the teachings of Jesus found in what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. We live in a nation that's becoming increasingly either apathetic or hostile to Christianity. In 2018 and 2019, 65% of adults described themselves as Christians. And that's down 12% since 2009. At the same time, the percentage of adults who describe themselves as atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular, has risen from 17% to 26%. Members of non-Christian religions have also grown as a percentage of the population. Some of those who would call themselves Christians do so because they're not Jews, Muslims, or something else, and they live in America. A few years ago, we entered into what could be called a post-Christian phase. We have gone past that. Some have called our time a neo-pagan age. It's much like the conditions that the church faced in the Roman Empire way back in the first century. All you have to do is take a good look around. You see the rampant immorality, the worship of wealth and pleasure, and the ruthless seeking for power and control. Now, unfortunately, there are those who would call themselves Christians who have no idea what was taught by the one they claim to belong to. Polls have been done that reveal that many who call themselves Christian spend little time reading scripture or worshiping with a church community. There are also many whose beliefs line up better with the culture around them than with scripture. Recent events have borne this out. Some are Christian because they're American. Some are Christian because they don't follow another religion. Some are Christian because they grew up in the church and their parents were Christians. One of the reasons I think for this state of affairs is that there has been a lack of discipleship in the church. Jesus gave us the mission of making disciples, teaching them to obey everything that he has taught. A disciple is a learner, is an apprentice. The disciples in Jesus' day that would attach themselves to a rabbi, they lived with that rabbi. They wanted to become like that rabbi and relate to God in the same way that that rabbi did. Jesus' disciples were like that. And he calls us to make those same kind of people. If we're going to truly follow the king of kings, we have to know what he taught. Now, the Beatitudes get to the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. Being a Christian is not what we do. It's not what we give assent to. It is who we are. If we cannot humble ourselves and see that we are poor and wretched and mourn over our condition and the condition of this broken world, then we need to take a look at our hearts and see if we really are who we say we are. If we are proud and don't really care about righteousness, 
then maybe we're not really citizens of Christ's kingdom. It's worth asking. If we're going to tell a pagan culture that Jesus is Lord and Savior, we have to be able to show them that it is true. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone. Who, everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. People are not going to ask us for the reason for our hope if they don't see it. They're not going to be interested in Jesus as Lord, King, and Savior if they don't see any difference in us. Knowing and loving, knowing and living the teaching on the Sermon of the Mount is going to make that difference clear. Our message will then attract the poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who are hungry for righteousness because they will see it in us. Not only that, they will see that we have hope. That is why we are studying this section of scripture. And our prayer is that the Spirit will sink these teachings of our King deep into our hearts and cause us to live as subjects of the King. Today we come to the fifth beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Robert Gundry, in his commentary on Matthew, says that this is the beginning of the second quartet of the Beatitudes. The first four deal with an individual's private attitudes and conditions, while the second four deal with an individual's relationships with others. And as we go further into the Sermon on the Mount, we'll see that these Beatitudes are carried out in what Jesus commands, what Jesus teaches the rest of the way. We are able to do those things because the Holy Spirit produces those in us because we are these kind of people. So while the world says, happy are the rich, the ones who don't have a care, the people who are strong and never let anything get them down, the ones who are in charge and don't let anyone tell them what to do, the ones who look out for number one, Jesus says that his kingdom is made up of people who are poor, who mourn, who are meek, the people that hunger for more than this world's treasures. As Paul Simon put it, the sat upon, spat upon, and ratted on. The Jewish leaders were telling the people that in order for the kingdom to come, they had to keep the Torah, just like the Pharisees did. That was the way that... They said, if, if you all will keep the Torah, then the Messiah will come. It's your fault that he's not coming. They believed, too, that their wealth and their position was proof that they had God's favor. And that their arrogance was justified because they were the keepers of the law. Remember the man that Jesus healed, uh, the blind man, and... He tried to say, well, you know, this guy has to be of God because he healed me. When has it ever been seen that somebody who was not of God healed the eyes of the blind? And they kicked him out of the synagogue and said, you're just a sinner. and You're going to teach us? That was their attitude because they were the keepers of the law. 
Now, in this beatitude, we see again the upside-down, countercultural nature of the kingdom of God and those who are part of it. Before we get into the contrast between the world and the kingdom regarding mercy, let's define mercy. <coughs> let's take a water break. The Greek phrase, hoi elimons, the merciful, the compassionate, doesn't only carry the idea of not punishing someone who deserves it or not dealing harshly with someone, but it also means actively showing kindness to someone who is in need or trouble. In the Gospels, mercy means showing compassion to the needy and the suffering. The parable of the Good Samaritan is a good example of someone showing mercy. The lawyer responded to Jesus' question about who was the neighbor with the one who showed him mercy. Mercy can also be not giving one what they deserve when it is in our power to do so. In the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18, the king had mercy on a servant who owed him a vast amount of money, millions of dollars. Then this servant turns around and had a fellow servant thrown in prison over a few bucks. Needless to say, his lack of mercy ended up in his getting thrown in prison himself. Mercy is not a sentimental feeling that does nothing. In fact, in Micah chapter 6 verse 8, loving mercy is paired with doing justice. And walking humbly with God. We normally don't think of justice and mercy going together. But they do in Christ's kingdom. James writes that if a person says to someone in need, Go in peace, be warm, be fed. But doesn't it do anything to help? It does absolutely no good. Mercy is action. And it's also more than not giving someone what they deserve. It's actively going out and showing compassion by compassionate, selfless acts. It's actively doing good to help those in need. It is a characteristic of kingdom life, which Jesus calls one of the weightier matters of the law in Matthew 23, 23. Now, mercy was not a common thing in the first century. One Roman philosopher called mercy a disease of the soul. In the uh, book, The Impact of Justice on the Roman Empire, the authors write, for Romans, justice was the value that most legitimized their right to rule other peoples internally. It was a leading political principle that justified the power entrusted to emperors and the senatorial and the equestrian elites. This seems paradoxical in modern eyes. Maybe not so much. The violence and brutality with which Rome conquered its empire and subdued the nations in it was on a scale rarely witnessed before. Its role relied on structural violence towards slaves, lower class, and conquered people, and on massive inequality between different social groups. I won't make any comments. Um... The empire was a monarchy dressed up as a republic. Yet it nonetheless addressed elites, city dwellers, 
landholders and peasants from widely different ethnic, cultural, and social backgrounds as stakeholders of a social order governed by law and justice. Remarkably, many genuinely believed that they were. The rule of law imposed by Rome was eventually, if not initially, accepted as legitimate by the vast majority of the empire's inhabitants. During the first centuries of our era, up to a quarter of the human race expected justice from Roman authorities or Roman-backed local authorities and arranged their lives accordingly. In other words, justice or law and order was what legitimized the harshness with which the Romans treated others. And they were able to convince the citizens that they had a part in that and that it was a good thing. Roman justice was much like the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. It was at the point of a sword. There was no room for mercy in either one. Philosophers such as Plato taught the idea of reciprocity, do good to those who do you good, and evil to those who do you evil. This idea was at the center of Greco-Roman ethics. Well, the Pharisees were also not known for being merciful people. If it had been up to the Pharisees, the woman caught in adultery would have simply been stoned to death. Later in chapter 5, Jesus says, You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That was the prevailing attitude of the Jewish leaders. Even Jesus' disciples struggled with the idea of mercy. In Luke 9, the group was denied entry to a Samaritan village. And James and John asked Jesus if he wanted them to call down fire from heaven and consume them. Took them a while to get it, I think. Like us. Well, here in the enlightened 21st century, we don't have any problem with people treating each other with mercy, do we? Yeah, we do. For a lot of folks, their golden rule is do unto others before they do unto you. Now, I haven't yet pulled the plug on social media because I still see it as a way to try to influence people for good. Maybe I'm wasting my time. I don't know. One of the things I am noticing, though, is that many who call themselves Christians seem to have forgotten this particular verse in the last few months, actually last few years, I think, when it comes to their interactions with others. I have seen friendships end, families fractured over political differences. Even churches have been split over the same. Much of this is due to the refusal to be merciful to those who disagree with us. There is a German word, schadenfreude, I think I pronounced that correctly, that means pleasure derived from another's misfortunes. I have seen a lot of schadenfreude spill out over the last few months. And it tends to take the form of grinding people into the dust and leaving no room for mercy. And I'll be the first one to admit that this is something that I struggle with. I can remember when people have done me wrong, rather than having the attitude to be merciful and forgive right away, 
I was thinking of ways to get revenge. I would spend time. What if I did this? If I did. Eventually, God got me to the point where I was able to forgive people. But it's it's not easy. It's not easy. Mercy is a sense of pity as well as desire to relieve suffering. The good Samaritan had pity on the injured man. And he showed mercy by relieving his suffering. The Pharisee and the teacher of the law that bypassed the man, they may well have had pity, but they showed no mercy. We show mercy when we have in our powers someone who has transgressed against us and we don't give them what they deserve. In J.R.R. Tolkien's The Fellowship of the Ring, the following dialogue took place between Gandalf and Frodo Baggins about the opportunity that Bilbo missed to kill Gollum. Oh, Gandalf, best of friends, what am I to do? For now I am really afraid. What am I to do? What a pity that Bilbo did not stab that vile creature when he had a chance. Pity? It was pity that stayed his hand. Pity and mercy. Not to strike without need. And he has been well rewarded, Frodo. Be sure that he took so little harm from the evil and escaped in the end because he began his ownership of the ring so with pity. I am sorry, said Frodo, but I am frightened and I do not feel any pity for Gollum. You have not seen him, Gandalf broke in. No, and I don't want to, said Frodo. Now, at any rate, he is as bad as an orc and just an enemy. He deserves death. Deserves it. I dare say he does. Many that live deserve death. And many that die deserve life. Can you give it to them? Then do not be too eager to deal out death in judgment. For even the very wise cannot see all ends. Gandalf goes on to say that my heart tells me that he has some part to play yet for good or ill before the end. And when that comes, the pity of Bilbo may rule the fate of many, yours not least. Just like Frodo, we don't know everything. We don't know how God is going to use a person or a circumstance. We don't know their heart. And we don't know what God has in store for them. We are to show them mercy as far as our part goes and then leave the rest in the hands of the one who knows the end from the beginning. So that's mercy. Blessed are the merciful. Well, there's more to that verse. The second part of the verse reads, for they shall receive mercy. Now, does this mean that we will receive mercy from God if we are merciful to others? In chapter 6, verse 14, it seems that Jesus is telling us that if we don't forgive others, then the Father won't forgive us. Both of these seem as if Jesus is teaching a salvation by works. God will give you what you give to other people. Well, considering that the rest of the scripture is pretty clear about our inability to do anything to earn our right standing with God, 
and that it is all by God's grace. I think we can safely say that Jesus meant something else entirely. We cannot earn mercy by being merciful. We can't tally up the times we're merciful and think, okay, now God's going to be merciful to us over here. It doesn't work that way. Just like we cannot earn forgiveness by being forgiving. The only thing we can do is repent and believe. Leaving our own little kingdom and putting our trust in and giving our allegiance to the true king. When we come to see our poverty and turn to Christ's riches, we receive God's mercy and forgiveness. And that causes us to be merciful people. Remember the Beatitudes are not so much what we do, but rather are who we are. When we become a part of the kingdom of God, we mourn and are comforted. We are meek because we know we have nothing to boast about. And we hunger and thirst for true righteousness. Because these things are true of us, we recognize that everything we are is because of God's mercy to us. When we realize how huge that mercy is, we really have no choice but to be merciful. It's who we are. It's like a bird flies because it's a bird. A fish swims because it's a fish. People who have experienced God's mercy are merciful because that's simply who they are.